Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Every day, scientists find out more about the brain, which is great for science, but it has also prompted a bunch of dominoes to fall outside of science and medicine. One of those dominoes has been in the courtroom, where lawyers and juries and judges are increasingly interested in what brain research can teach us about intentions and incapacity and lies. Why did someone do the bad thing? Why couldn't he or she stop himself when a lot of others could stop themselves? Francis Shen is an associate law professor at the University of Minnesota, and he's the executive director of education for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. He points to a case that may be extreme, but that puts brain science to the test. The case was Roper v. Simmons, which was brought before the Supreme Court in 2004, and it centered around a teenager named Christopher Simmons. Christopher Simmons, he's coming out of the state of Missouri, and he tells his friends before he does this bad thing that he wants to uh, kill someone and throw them off a bridge. They break into this elderly woman's house. He goes and does it. Um, uh, he duct tapes her. He throws her over the, the water. She drowns. He then tells his friends afterwards, you know, I'm glad we did it. He's bragging about it. He confesses to it. It was a great Supreme Court case because it raised this question of, wait a second. Yes, he's 17. He was 17 years old at the time. Okay, okay. Yes, he's 17. But boy, it sure looks like he planned. He knew what he was doing. This wasn't a road rage incident. That wasn't a gang fight in the back. Where t- How is it that we think that um, we should treat him differently? And indeed, the, what the prosecutor argued in that case was, yes, he's different, but in a way that should give us pause and treat him more harshly. Okay, so let's stop here for a second before we go any further. Simmons clearly did a terrible thing, and the prosecution wanted to give the jury the option of sentencing Simmons to death. But we've learned a lot about young brains in recent years, information the defense thought was important. Neuroscientist Francis Jensen, who I talked to a couple of years back, has written a book on the teenage brain, and she says, look, we used to think that young brains were like old brains, but with fewer miles on them. Science told us we were wrong. So actually, the front of your brain gets fully connected, fully hooked up for like millisecond to millisecond signaling, not until the mid to late 20s. It's there, and it's partially connected, but the final process of making it, you know, fast access doesn't happen till later. Jensen is the chair of the neurology department at the University of Pennsylvania. She notes that when you're a teenager, or even when you're in your early 20s, your emotions are fully loaded, but your judgment, your planning abilities, they are not completely in place yet. And we do see that teenagers have greater challenges um, controlling their impulses, controlling emotional lability, if you will, and are very, very susceptible to peer pressure, which is, of course, giving them emotional, you know, giving an emotional cue to them without that frontal lobe to say, bad idea, probably shouldn't, you know, shouldn't jump off that cliff, shouldn't do this. What research has taught us about how we develop our judgment and make decisions that are rational, that ended up influencing the court at least on the question of, should Christopher Simmons, this 17-year-old who had admitted to murder, should he be up for the death penalty? And the Supreme Court said uh, no. Um, They, in a footnote in that case, and then later sort of uh, in these other two cases reaffirming that that decision, said that the developing brain is um, one that's less culpable and one that's more amenable to change uh, going forward. Is there a push to say 
Let's not have the cutoff be 17. Let's spare people in the early 20s from the death penalty because it might have once been thought that you stopped being a kid or your brain stopped developing at 18, but no more do we think that. There is an active push um, from some to it's called raise the bar, both in terms of how death penalty, of course, but just even more generally, we've got a system right now. You've got adults and juveniles. And once you're 18, you're in the adult system. And so there have been some attempts, uh, for instance, in California and around San Francisco to create young adult courts that would recognize that between 18 and 21 to 25, they're not quite fully formed adult yet, but they're also not 12-year-olds. How do we create a justice system that allows for that? Because right now you've got two options. You put them with the adults or or with the kids. Neither seems too good. So we would have to really reconceptualize the system. And that's what neuroscience and law is about. It's about saying, look, how, what do we understand about the brain, both in individual case, what might be changed, but it's taking a step back. How can we um, you know, change the system? And, and those conversations are happening, and some of the most innovative localities are starting to do something about it. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Francis Shen, an associate law professor at the University of Minnesota and the executive director of education for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. Tell me some kinds of cases or specific cases in which neuroscience is entering law that we might not be aware of. Like now that people are really making certain kinds of arguments or entering, you know, brain scans into evidence or whatever it is. Sure. So um, let me talk about the holy grail of neuroscience and law, which is lie detection. There have now been just a handful of cases in which a defendant has tried to introduce brain-based lie detection. Um, one was with uh, fMRI, so a big functional magnetic resonance imaging scan. And in both cases, the defendant wanted to say, I'm innocent, and I want additional evidence to prove I'm innocent, so please let this expert testify with this brain-based lie detection. And in, Let me stop you uh-huh. for a second. So that means, I assume... They're being scanned. They're in the MRI machine. And I guess people are asking them questions about, like, did you commit this crime? That's the idea. And they've previously asked them questions and gotten truthful answers, previously asked them some questions, and this is one of the methodological challenges, and instructed them to lie. So if I said to you, please say right now you're in Los Angeles, we're in Boston, you would be lying. We'll scan your brain there. Then we'll scan. Okay. So you see what a lie looks like in my brain my name is Kara, that's true, what the truth looks like, and then you try to then figure out... the big the, question yeah, okay. and with the big reveal. That's the idea. Now, there are all sorts of challenges, uh, scientific challenges, and as a result, in both cases, the judge in those um, cases decided not to let the jury hear that, that evidence. Well, to that point, it seems like a serious concern when you get into very technical stuff and interpreting brain scans and all sorts of things that neither the jury nor the judge may be equipped. I mean, they didn't go to med school, probably, and they may not be equipped to really analyze what they're hearing or to cast a critical eye on the experts who are testifying. Like, who knows? They're, they're trying to deal with things without real context. Does that worry you? It definitely worries me. And we've got a little bit of anecdotal evidence that um, some jurors could be persuaded. There's a defendant named Grady Nelson in Florida, and he did horrible things. He stabbed his wife over 60 times and killed her. He attempted to kill his stepchildren, just a litany of bad things. And it was clear that he was guilty. The only question in that case was, um, what was his sentence going to be? Was he going to death row 
or life without the possibility of parole. At sentencing, um, his attorney introduced what's called quantitative electroencephalography evidence. Big uh, name, but it boiled down to the jurors for these brain maps, pictures of a brain with the expert testifying about them. And Terry Lenneman's argument, so these are the lawyer's words now communicating the science, he said, um, Mr. Nelson has a broken brain doesn't excuse his actions, but it explains them and pretty much said, ladies and gentlemen, jury, you ought to go with life. And they did. And three of those jurors spoke uh, to the media afterwards. Two of them said when they saw the brain scans, it changed their decision. One said it turned me all the way around when I saw that brain evidence. So the third one said, there's nothing wrong with that guy's brain. <laughs> but uh, but there is evidence that this could persuade jurors. And I think your question is right. I doubt that those jurors understood all the nuances of the, and certainly the judge, I th don't think, of the of the data and the procedures, but it was persuasive. Um, and it doesn't actually seem like seeing the brain scan changed anybody's mind. It was seeing the brain scan plus somebody telling them what that meant, right? I mean, you could put a brain scan in front of 99% of us. I would have no idea what I was looking at. I would need somebody to accompany that scan and tell me. So then I'm very dependent on the accuracy and the, you know, the work that that person has done to tell me things accurately. Yes. And if much like the old, old cliche, if you go into the sausage factory and you see how those images are developed, you might be very concerned. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked a lot about criminal cases. Do you think that our increasing knowledge of the brain is also going to change the legal system when it comes to cases that are not about murder or, um, you know, other terrible crimes. Are there court cases um, in that vein that stick out to you? Yeah, there, there's one big one, and uh, it's one of my favorite cases. It's called Allen v. Bloomfield Hills. I'll take you to Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, and there's a school bus coming, and the crossing gate goes down, ding, 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 and for whatever reason, the school bus driver swerves around and tries to get ahead of the train. Well, it doesn't work. The train collides with the school bus. Thankfully, there are no kids on the school bus, but we're interested in a guy named Charles Allen, who is the conductor of the train. A big train hits a bus. He walks out with nary a scratch, but he finds the school bus driver uh, horribly hurt. And Mr. Allen, the conductor, goes on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. Everyone agrees he's got the PTSD, and pretty much everyone agrees that it was caused by this very traumatic incident. Here's the challenge. Michigan, like most states, has uh, an immunity, set of immunity statutes. You can't sue the government for everything, but there's a bodily injury exception. So bodily injury, what is that? If he had been walking and his femur was broke, he got hit by the bus, he could sue for the lost wages due to his broken leg. But remember, he was the conductor in the train. Not a scratch on him, but he has the PTSD. Legal question, the science question, the deep question, is post-traumatic stress disorder a bodily injury, a physical injury? The district court said, no way. It's, we've never, it's a mental injury. Mental and physical are completely different. Mm -hmm. The appellate court, however, and Mr. Allen introduced brain imaging evidence, followed his logic. And he argued that the brain is a part of the body. Post-traumatic stress disorder, even if we don't know it, exactly what it is, we know it's physically in the brain. And therefore, you put those two together, PTSD is a bodily injury, a physical injury. Appellate court said, we agree, and it went up to the Michigan Supreme Court. There were amicus briefs from insurance, from plaintiffs that really drew a lot of attention, and it settled. So we don't know um, how these cases are going to work out. But to me, that might be the deepest question of all. Uh, and one of the most challenging laws based on what's described as mind-body dualism, that the mind is one thing, and then the, the dual, the physical, is the rest. And when you say heart-to-heart, heart, the heart pumps blood, matter of the heart, 
Those are matters of the brain. Once we kind of culturally um, get our heads around that, we will need to re-envision law. And, and that's the longer plan. That's going to take centuries. But, um, but it's coming slowly but surely. And, you know, Alan V. Bloomfield Hills is an mm-hmm. example. If you think about where things are headed in the next 5, 10, 15 years, you know, do you see maybe a decision down the road or or some trend in terms of how neuroscience and the law intersect that you think, I, you know, I think this is coming even though it might surprise people who are not really focused on this particular area? Yeah, I think the big thing is that law has always, and clinicians too, but law too, have relied on really two types of evidence, what someone can self-report, so we'll ask you questions, and what others have seen, or what we've observed now, you know, with video cameras. What brain science offers is evidence that um, potentially is not observable directly. You can look at me all the time. You don't know what's going on in my brain. You can infer it, but you can't see it. And I can't explain to you what's going on in my brain. And so when there's a divergence between what you see, what I consciously experience, and what we see happening in my brain, that is going to really challenge law. And I'll give you two examples on either end of the spectrum. With good uh, accuracy, we can take um, uh, brain scans of six-month-year-old toddlers and predict whether or not they'll end up on the autism spectrum at two years. At the back end of, of this, we are moving towards taking a bunch of clinical data, including brain scans, and telling Uh, individuals with some decent likelihood whether or not they'll develop uh, Alzheimer's um, or another form of of dementia. So suddenly in those cases, you look fine, you feel fine, but there's something going on inside that suggests things aren't fine. And that's going to raise a host of questions, legal questions. Does insurance have to get involved? If someone committed a crime in that older state, is that suddenly a defense? Again, I look fine, I feel fine, But there's something happening inside that we can now see that may suggest I'm not fine. And we're going to see instances of that more and more. And law is going to have to reckon with how do we take this data that had always been mysterious for the entire course of human history. We can now pull it out, but not with 100 percent accuracy, with all its warts. Um, What do we do with that? Um, And and I see that stuff coming. I think people aren't prepared for it. I don't think the law is prepared for it. Hmm. Francis Shen is an associate professor of law at the University of Minnesota. He's also the executive director of education for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on law and neuroscience. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for a fun conversation. If you want to know more about how the developing teenage mind affects behavior, we've got links to the work of neuroscientist Francis Jensen, who you heard from at the beginning of this segment. That's at our website, innovationhub.org.